Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Small colleges are closing their doors across our region. As we look through the next couple of years, we're balancing our budget. It gets increasingly tough for us to do that um, when we look in the out years in terms of the demographic cliff and things like that. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll discuss the future of higher education in New England. And this time of year, there are many benefits to using wood heat. It's all those fuzzy feel-good things you get when you buy produce from the farmer's market. But what about the downsides? It might take 60, 80, 100 years for that tree you cut down to be replaced by a tree of equivalent size. Plus, what's the role of urban trees in combating climate change? We need to start having a different paradigm for how we think about just one tree, especially when it's a 150-year-old tree. Finally, they're way bigger than house cats. They're definitely not mountain lions, and their numbers are growing. We'll learn about bobcats. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to start our show with a trip to a few college campuses, dealing with very different kinds of crises. First, to Dartmouth College, where in November, seven current and former students sued for gender discrimination, sexual assault, and harassment. The lawsuit details what's being called a 21st century animal house, in which professors held meetings at bars, invited students to hot tub parties, and even invited undergraduate students to use real cocaine during classes related to addiction. Dartmouth College formally responded to the suit last week, saying they appropriately handled reports of faculty misconduct. NHPR's Brita Green has been following this story, and she joins us now. Brita, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Tell us about some of the allegations that were included in this lawsuit. Yeah, so the lawsuit is pretty wide-ranging. The plaintiffs are arguing that the college really systematically mishandled reports of discrimination, harassment, and even assault, um, in some cases rape. Um, They say that that hurt women obviously physically, but also professionally throughout the years. And there's three professors named specifically as perpetrators, Todd Heatherton, Bill Kelly, and Paul Whelan. Let's hear now from one of the plaintiffs, uh, Marissa Evans. She describes her allegations against Bill Kelly, a professor who she worked with as a research assistant in his lab. She was talking to WBUR's Radio Boston. I joined his lab and then worked for about two years. And after about a year, things progressed from being just social interactions over text messages and, you know, lab meetings at bars and whatnot to becoming much more sexually driven. And then it started to add on to um, my career. So if I didn't respond in the way that was most favorable in his eyes, then I would lose hours, I would lose projects, I'd be taken off things, there would be just this very passive aggressive, controlling, manipulative tone to the lab where it's either you concede to what I want, or you have to sacrifice parts of your career. Brita, is what she's saying here indicative of the complaints levied in the suit? Yeah, it is. And and what you'll hear the women say is that, you know, in these lab environments, your professor or your PI, as they would call it, wields 
a lot of power over them. I mean, it's really their boss. They're the person who signs off on what conferences they can go to, what grants they can apply for, um, and that some of these men um, sort of over time built on that power and built it and built it until basically the women were completely being controlled by them and didn't feel like they had any ability to get out of the situation. They're also saying, too, that there were earlier complaints that the college was aware of or allegedly aware of dating back to the early 2000s. And if that if those complaints had been handled properly, um, that it could have prevented this situation that they found themselves in more recently. So these three professors identified uh, Bill Kelly, Todd Hetherington, and Paul Whalen. None of them are at the college anymore, right? That's correct. Yeah, they were essentially forced out. One was allowed to retire because of the length of time he'd been there. After this lawsuit was filed, uh, over 500 students and alumni signed an open letter to the college president. Um, What did that letter say? What they were saying is that Hey, what we're hearing in this lawsuit, what's being laid out as as what happened to these young women is a familiar story. They were saying that this is a long-running cultural problem they feel at Dartmouth and it's time that the administrators take a stronger stance against it. They then at a later point actually detailed a list of much more specific demands that they'd like to see in terms of action from college leaders. So what has the college done to this point? How have they responded to all of these allegations that have come out? So they've publicly um, said that they admire the women's courage in coming forward and bringing their experience to light. They say that they've moved they moved quickly in this case. They've denied allegations that that they didn't take complaints seriously earlier and they've announced a series of actions to try to um, prevent similar situations in the future like I said and increase diversity on campus. They're they're promising to fund more mental health resources on campus and to try to do better at recruiting and retaining um, diverse faculty. And what happens next in this case as it moves forward? So uh, this group of alumni that has organized is planning to meet with senior leaders and sort of push their demands forward. There's also an independent group of faculty that's organized that says they will have more recommendations or demands in the coming weeks or months. And then, of course, there's there's the legal case progresses, so there'll be a hearing that's currently scheduled for February. Brita Green is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find links to all of her reporting on Dartmouth at nextnewengland.org. As always, Brita, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. When a college student is found guilty of sexual assault, many schools don't note this on their academic transcripts. And that means they're often able to move on to other schools without anyone knowing their background. VPR's Bela Metzger brings us the story of a University of Vermont student who's launched a campaign to change this, and lawmakers are paying attention. Help prevent sexual assault on college campuses. Takes five seconds to sign the petition. Sid Ovid is manning a fold-up table at the University of Vermont Student Center. It's covered with pink homemade flyers. She's spreading the word about a campaign she started called Explain the Asterisk. Explain the Asterisk is a legislative campaign that would require colleges and universities to explicitly differentiate when a student's been kicked out for things like bad grades or plagiarism compared to when they're kicked out for things like sexual or domestic violence or stalking. Ovid's campaign is personal. A year ago, during her first semester at UVM, Ovid says she was sexually assaulted by a fellow student. She went from being excited about school to barely making it to class. It was just really hard. Like, my PTSD was, like, really bad. Like, I just, like, couldn't sleep. Like, I was just, like, having nightmares all the time. She reported the assault to the school. Her alleged perpetrator was found not guilty. But the experience led Ovid to research the laws around campus sexual assault proceedings. She says she found a lot of holes in the system. But one in particular stunned her. 
if he was to be dismissed, like he could just transfer to another school with a clean slate. And that just made me feel really uneasy. Some colleges and universities put a mark on students' academic transcripts, like an asterisk, if they're expelled for violating the code of conduct. But it usually doesn't specify if the student plagiarized, flunked out, or if they were found guilty of a violent crime, like rape. Some critics say that's an imperfect system. But at UVM, administrators don't mark transcripts with non-academic violations at all. In the case of sexual assault, nothing is put on the transcript. No asterisk, no notation, nothing. Instead, the school keeps sexual assault violations to disciplinary files, which students have more control over. As far as Ovid's concerned, this is not adequate. It just irked me, for lack of better words. <laughs> Ovid emailed every single legislator in Vermont to tell them about this issue. She started a petition on change.org to help build momentum. In about a year, it's gotten more than 50,000 signatures. But some say the issue isn't so simple, including UVM's registrar. One of the concerns is that once the disciplinary notations are added to transcripts, the transcript itself almost acts like a form of a sex offender registry. Veronica Carter oversees student records, including transcripts. She says most schools keep disciplinary notifications off of transcripts because of strict laws that protect student privacy. Carter worries that a sexual assault violation on a transcript could keep students who don't have a criminal conviction in court from getting college degrees or landing jobs. She says a lot of details would need to be nailed down before UVM would consider changing its policy. What do we do if a student actually transfers while a hearing is in process? Is there an appeal period in which a student might appeal to have a notation removed? Almost two years ago, the lead professional organization for collegiate registrars, the ones in charge of transcripts, issued new guidelines saying that putting certain behavioral violations on transcripts is a good way for colleges to keep students safe from repeat offenders. But UVM hasn't done that, and they're not the only ones. Only two states, New York and Virginia, have passed laws that require it. Last year, there was an effort to make it federal. It didn't gain traction, but Ovid's campaign has caught the eye of Vermont Congressman Peter Welch, who plans to co-sponsor a bill in Washington. And what Sid says, quite rightly, is the new college should be aware of that conviction and the nature of it, that it was a sexual assault. While Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has proposed giving additional protections to college students accused of sexual misconduct, Welch is hopeful that with a Democratic majority in the House, his bill supporting survivors will have success. But this is all a result of the forthright action of Sid coming forward and trying to turn what was a really horrible, horrible event in her life into something that can be constructive. Ovid has been reaching out to every U.S. senator, working her way down the list of states alphabetically. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bela Metzger. Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, announced last week that they're looking for a strategic partner that could help them survive while they decide whether or not to admit a class of students to start at the college in the fall of 2019. Here's Miriam Nelson, president of Hampshire College, speaking about the decision at a press conference. As we look through the next couple of years, we're balancing our budget. It gets increasingly tough for us to do that um, when we look in the out years in terms of the demographic cliff and things like that. 
This is just the latest headline about the uncertain future of small colleges in our region. Mount Ida College in Newton, Mass., closed in 2018. Wheelock College merged with Boston University. And just this week, Green Mountain College, the 185-year-old school in western Vermont, said it will close at the end of the spring semester. Here to talk about the future of small colleges in our region is Laura Kronz. She's a higher education reporter for the Boston Globe. I asked her, is this news from Hampshire similar to what she's heard from other schools? Yes, definitely. It's what all the school presidents are saying who find themselves in this position. And they're right to a certain extent. We know that there is a declining number of high schoolers in the U.S., especially in the Northeast. Um, And so that's going to be um, an increasing problem for colleges in the years to come. At the same time, the population who is going to college is increasingly unable to pay the high tuition that these schools are charging. So those two things combined are making it really hard for colleges. We also called Sue Stubner, president of Colby Sawyer College in New London, New Hampshire. We asked her about her reaction to the Hampshire College News. It was definitely one that surprised us when you look at just their fundamentals. They look on paper like they're they're doing well. So I think um, I would applaud them for projecting out into the future and, and seeing that there's a problem coming. Um, you know, I think I'm sure there's been a lot of deliberation around what's the right path to go forward. And um, I hope that they're able to find a partner that's a good fit. I'm sure that some of the problems that have been outlined already apply in some ways to Colby Sawyer College. Maybe you can talk about how your school is is the same or, or different from places like Hampshire and some of the others that have fallen on hard times right now. Well, I think we're all facing, as Laura said, that the, the demographics are not in our favor. You know, there are fewer and fewer students graduating from high school in New England, and the growth in some of the areas where students are going to be graduating from high school are in populations that have not traditionally always gone on to college with the same degree of success. In New England and New Hampshire in particular, the greatest growth in high school graduates is going to be first-generation students, and so... I think one way that we may be a a little bit distinct is that we do have 46% of our students are first generation. Laura is absolutely right that the price, the sticker price of higher education is incredibly confusing to families today. Um, the, The real reality of the net cost to students, however, is usually much more affordable than it, it appears at first. So we do have this real conundrum of how to make students aware that there's a substantial amount of financial aid um, available for students. I think the other thing that I would just note is that we're all facing pressure to think about what our strengths are, where we can really accentuate what we do well. The outcomes piece is is critical. You have to be able to translate for students and families, as Laura said, how whatever kind of education you offer translates into being prepared for your first job as well as for your lifelong career. Just this week, the Massachusetts Board of Higher Education announced a plan to keep track of private colleges' financial situations. Laura, tell us more about why they're doing this. Yeah, so this is actually really a reaction to Mount Ida, the college that closed last year in in a very chaotic way. So there was a lot of reaction to that closure because it came just two months before the end of the school year. Students had no idea. Professors had no idea. There was already a class of freshmen who were, um, you know, thinking that they were about to start moving into the Mount Ida dorms, you know, at the end of the summer. And all that was sort of thrown into disarray. So state officials were caught off guard and um, sort of pledged after that to make sure this never happens again. So what you have is kind of a reaction to that. It's a plan 
by state officials, um, which is semi-controversial, um, to to regulate and monitor colleges uh, financially so that they hope that um, they can sort of catch schools that are in trouble sooner than, um, you know, how it happened at Mount Ida. I, I will say, however, having covered both private and public schools across the region for years, that it's it's difficult sometimes to get real good financial information out of public institutions where you should be able to get the latest information from, say, a state school. How are they going to get information on college financial situations from private colleges, which sometimes can be a little tight with their information, Laura? Absolutely. And that's going to be a challenge because what they're saying right now is that they're going to use publicly available data. The problem with that is the data is two years old. And that's the most recent thing that you can find on the Internet. So they're going to be in a little bit of a difficult spot because they're going to be looking at two-year-old data. And with schools um, in the category that we're talking about, a lot can change in two years. So then they're going to have to you know, estimate based on that data and then go to the school and say, hey, is this still up to date? What has changed? You know, try to talk to the the school and and go from there. So it's going to be difficult. President Stubner, I'd love your thoughts on this. I heard you chuckle in the background. <laughs> yeah, I think you know that as Laura said, the publicly available data is it's it's always lagging two to three years behind. And so I think that that is a problematic aspect of what they're proposing. Um, I will say I, I am a an active member of of NETCHI, the New England Commission on Higher Education, and will be a team chair for them this year. And you know, I, at the team training, they are doing a lot of work to try to use accreditation as a lever for more follow-up in real time, I think, on financial situations of colleges. And, you know, the one concern I have about the state of Massachusetts proposal, while I completely applaud them looking out for their students, um, a lot of us at small institutions are incredibly lean. And to increase... Um, more regulation or more reporting at a time when we're really working hard to do everything we can to preserve the quality of our education. You know, it, are there levers currently available through NETCHI or other other places that maybe we can get to the same outcome? Given all these issues and the importance of making sure that you've got the right number of students at, at any one time or any given semester, it's interesting, Laura, what, what Hampshire has decided to do in waiting a bit on the announcement about whether or not they're going to admit a fall class, at least they are signaling to parents and students, here's what our intentions are moving forward. However, I could see the downstream impact of that being that if we talk about this enough right now, probably no one's going to want to go to Hampshire College in the fall for for fear that it's just going to fall apart halfway through a semester. Yeah, it's a complete catch-22. But I thought it was really fascinating the way that Hampshire did this because it's kind of signaling that schools are watching other ones close and saying, you know, we're not going to be like them. I'm talking about Mount Ida. It was so chaotic and last minute that I feel like this is a direct reaction to that, them saying, we're going to try to be up front. Um, we're going to let you know what's going on. Um, it's also in their interest because they're trying to attract another entity to merge with them. But I think there is, just in the way that parents are becoming more savvy, I think that among colleges it's becoming more, I don't know, I would be interested in, in um, President Stubner, your thoughts on this, but accepted that it might be inevitable for some of these schools to cease to exist in one form or another. And I feel like schools are at least trying to go about it in a more responsible way um, because I think they feel like they won't be 
blamed so much for doing something wrong is just seen as sort of a victim of the economic times that we're in. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Laura. I was just recently at the Council of Independent Colleges President's Institute, which happens early January every year. And I would say of the meetings that I've attended, this was one of the ones with the most candor and realism amongst the presidents and a willingness to really share what's going on and, you know, being honest about it's not going to be the same path for each of us. You know, we need to, some of us are going to be able to find partnerships that really sustain us. You know, others are not going to have the same choices. And, you know, there's certainly um, some some questions about how Hampshire has gone about this, but good for them for being transparent and trying to be proactive. Laura, as someone who covers higher education across our region, what what you think this means for the, the future of higher education, especially at these small private schools, of which there are so many across New England, that they're having to think differently about what the idea of liberal arts really means? Yeah, it's so interesting because it almost signals that while this is an industry and colleges are businesses, for a long time they haven't really thought or talked that way or operated that way, even though that's what they are. It's so unique, this industry that we're talking about, because colleges are so different from your average business. They're a community, and there are alumni, and there are traditions and buildings. President Stubner's her college has a beautiful library that's a former barn, and it just, so it just seems so much more tragic to lose a college than it would, you know, any other type of business. In a way, it's similar to the what's happening across the country economically as the middle class is sort of disappearing. This middle class of colleges is also sort of disappearing. And you wonder if we're going to see sort of the same stratification. You know, the wealthy elite schools are always going to be there, and they're always going to be able to fill their classes. Their yield rates are always going to be 100%. And there's always going to be, I feel like in one form or the other, public colleges and schools that are really committed to access and that can offer degrees at a a lower price. But as for these sort of regional schools that that are small and unique, I don't know. We'll see. Laura Krantz is a higher education reporter for the Boston Globe. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks also to Sue Stubner, president of Colby Sawyer College in New London, New Hampshire. Sounds like a wonderful place we want to come visit. Thank you so much, Sue. You're welcome anytime, John. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, we'll head to another college controversy over an ancient tree on the Harvard campus. But first, it's warm and cozy and smells great. But is heating with firewood all that good for the environment? We'll find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Across New England, people use wood stoves to stay warm all winter long, often thinking that wood heating is good for the environment. I mean, it's got to be better than, say, oil, right? Well, some big institutions think so, like the aforementioned Dartmouth College, which is investing $200 million in a wood-burning biomass plant to help meet its clean energy goals. But a lot of people question how clean that energy is. What are the environmental and economic benefits of wood heat in Vermont? And then what are, what are the costs to that? That's Coco Mosley, the question asker who prompted this month's edition of Vermont Public Radio's people-powered podcast, Brave Little State. VPR's Emily Corwin and Angela Evansy set out to answer her question, and they're here to tell us about what they found. Angela and Emily, welcome back to Next. 
Hi, John. Hey, John. Angela, in this episode, you, you kind of played the good cop here, and you were looking for some of the positives of heating with wood. What are some things you found? Yeah, so as far as the positives go, you really couldn't find a more enthusiastic cheerleader for wood heat than Emma Hansen. Emma is the wood energy coordinator at the Vermont Department of Forest, Parks, and Recreation. And she says that when it comes to economic factors, for example, wood heat is almost always cheaper than heating with fossil fuels, certainly more predictable, which is great if you're a homeowner. Um, And it also keeps money in the local economy. Here's what she told me. My favorite thing to point out when I'm talking about wood heat in Vermont is that when Vermonters heat with fossil fuel, 78 cents of every dollar leaves the state. Whereas when we heat with locally sourced wood, the inverse of that is true. So all that money stays right here in our communities, creating jobs for our neighbors, retaining local wealth. It's all those fuzzy feel-good things you get when you buy produce from the farmer's market. Wow. So that's interesting. So uh, a big economic benefit, that's something we usually don't associate with uh, heating with wood. Yeah. I mean, Emma has stickers on her laptop that say things like local wood, local good. (laughs) And it is sort of a philosophy similar to the local food movement, thinking about sort of supporting your local economy by sourcing your heat from where you live. And another interesting benefit I heard about from a lot of people is kind of a economic environmental hybrid. And it has to do with the logging industry and sustainable forestry. And basically the argument is that if you don't have enough demand for firewood and other low-grade wood that gets sort of processed and burned, so if not enough people basically are heating with wood, then it destabilizes the whole logging market. And this makes it more likely that property owners who own big tracts of forest land will sell it off for development because they won't be able to extract enough value from having it logged. And it also makes it harder for the loggers to practice selective timber management and also basically make ends meet in their work. Uh, I talked to Don Pratt and his son, Jordan. They're both loggers and Jordan owns his own forest management company. And here's what they said. Oh, I think this market, the firewood market, has helped a lot of loggers survive. It got to the point to where it's like, yeah, do we go to work today? Your older generation pretty well creamed most of the high-grade logs as far as I was concerned. You know, that's what they focused on because there was no market for firewood. and no big. They couldn't make a living off it, let's put it that way. And nowadays, it's for us, our firewood is more what we make most of our money on. Wow. So the idea of the working forest being good for the economy, and as you say, it supports local businesses. So those are some positives. All right, Emily, you're the bad cop here, though. What are some of the downsides you found about heating with wood? So some of the downsides include both air pollution and the environmental and health consequences of that, and then also the CO2 that's emitted from wood heat and, you know, questions about exactly how carbon-friendly wood heat is uh, when it comes to climate change. And, you know, if we could talk first about air pollution and in particular health effects, that's something that, you know, struck me as one of the most surprising and sort of uh, concerning things that that I learned in doing this research. I talked to Zoe Chafe. She's a researcher at Cornell University. And she talked about what's called PM 2.5. This stands for particulate matter that's smaller than 2.5 microns. And this is made up of all different kinds of things, tar, you know, particles of different kinds of things that come off of wood when you burn it. You know, at the very sort of basic uh, level, 
Wood is a dirty, it's a dirty heat. The more efficient your stove, the less air pollution. But the stuff that comes off of wood when you burn it is is not good. And she talks a little bit about what happens in the body when you inhale PM 2.5. What happens is that the particles can go deep into our bodies and um, they can travel so deep into our lungs that they actually cross over into our blood and the smallest ones can even go into our brain. And so... You know, what happens when you breathe this stuff, Zoe explained to me, is that it can lead to and exacerbate like things like lung disease, heart disease and asthma. So it's, it's pretty concerning when it comes to, to health. So, so that great smell, the beautiful smell of burning firewood that I associate with uh, being in a rural place in Vermont in the wintertime, that's actually getting a whole lot of bad particulate matter into my lungs. <laughs> I'm so sorry to tell you, John, but that's true. Oh, no. Okay, so there's, there's that. That's a downside. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people think of wood heating as, as being good for the environment, at least in comparison to something like burning oil or burning coal. So what do we know, Emily, about the environmental impacts of the practice? This is more complicated and it's interesting because a lot of colleges and even municipalities are adopting wood heat in order to meet carbon neutrality goals. And yet the question of whether wood heat is carbon neutral is changing and it's complicated. Traditionally, people have said that, you know, when a new tree is allowed to grow in the place of a tree that's been cut for wood heat, it will absorb all of the CO2 that's been emitted, making wood heat carbon neutral. There are two reasons why that's now not as correct (laughs) as we once considered it. First of all, Burning wood is a very high CO2 activity. It it emits more CO2 than other kinds of fuel that you burn for heat. Although it it will be, much of it will be reabsorbed in 60 to 100 years, increasingly we're coming to understand, scientists are, are coming to understand that we don't have that much time in order to, you know, really beat the most, uh, some, some really scary effects of climate change. So that's one thing is just the question, like, you can call it carbon neutral, but do we really have that much time? The second thing is that increasingly scientists like this fellow, Andy Friedland, who is a forest ecosystem scientist at Dartmouth College, increasingly he and his colleagues are finding that when you do cut a tree down and you burn it, it's not just the CO2 from burning that fuel that goes into the atmosphere. It also has these other side consequences that release more CO2 or speed up the release of CO2. So here's Andy Friedland. Um, He's a forest ecosystem scientist at Dartmouth College. But the trouble is, as we mentioned earlier, it might take 60, 80, 100 years for that tree you cut down to be replaced by a tree of equivalent size. So what about in that intervening 100 years? And what about today when, if you agree with me, that climate change is an extremely important issue, if not the most important issue facing humanity, What do we do in that intervening time? And so there's all these reasons why, in fact, the CO2 equation that people had been doing around uh, wood heat has changed and is is not as beneficial as we once thought. So, Emily, I'll ask you first, when it comes down to it, I mean, did you find that heating with wood is better for the environment than, say, gas or electric heat? What do we think? There are so many variables when it comes to this question. Um, I did not do a like complicated matrix analysis of all the different <laughs> kinds of heat. But here's, here's what the experts who are so concerned about climate change are saying. Um, they say, first of all, there are um, 
bad things about every single kind of fuel, even solar power, you know, solar powered electric. You're you've got to make the solar panels. You've got to transport them often from China. Nothing's perfect. And so what a lot of people suggest is diversifying if you can. Again, this is like if you have the privilege of being able to change your heating source, you know, being able to to diversify creates more options and and helps get new technologies, you know, moving forward. But really, like the number one most important thing you can do is just be efficient. That's sort of the bottom line. And so whatever your heat is, it's it's so much more important to make sure that your technology is efficient, your home is insulated, that you're just using less. How about you, Angela? I mean, what are some pros and cons you, you found out as you were reporting this episode? So as you said, John, I mean, I sort of played the good cop in this episode. Um, and that's because I do have some personal bias in favor of heating with wood. Um, I heat my home primarily with wood. And, you know, in the episode, we talk about these sort of more ineffable qualities that wood heat has that I think draw so many people to really appreciate, you know, the warmth of the flame and the sort of way that you feel good after you sort of stack up four cords of wood for the year and it's a good workout and you're outside. And then in the winter when you're sitting in front of your stove, it's it's so cozy. And and we can't really quantify that, but it's something that comes up a lot, right? Like, what, else, what other heat source could be as cozy as a wood stove? And I think a lot of New Englanders feel that way. That being said, you know, the, the air quality considerations were a big wake-up call for me reporting this episode and finding out what Emily was learning. And coincidentally, we happened to be um, in the process of upgrading our stove at home while Emily and I were reporting this episode. And I feel really good about the fact that we now do have a stove that was made in 2019 as opposed to 1970 um, because it's our new stove is certified by the Environmental Protection Agency for how cleanly and efficiently it burns. So to those sort of points that Emily was discussing, you know, there there are things that even if you're devoted to burning heat or it is just the fuel source that is right for you, there are things you can do um, to sort of improve or mitigate some of the, I guess, cons of the fuel source. So you're, you're feeling both good and cozy this winter. I am. That's a, that, that's a good feeling. Uh, Angela Evansees, VPR's managing editor for podcasts, host and creator of Brave Little State. Emily Corwin is VPR's investigative reporter and editor. They brought us a story. Well, really, it's a question that we've been asking ourselves for a while. Is it better to heat with wood or not? Emily and Angela, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Coming up, we'll learn about the role of urban trees in mitigating the effects of climate change. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Harvard's proposal to renovate a century-old building has come under fire over plans to cut down a 75-foot red oak tree to make way for a new meeting space. Urban trees are critical for reducing the effects of climate change, like flooding and extreme heat. And the controversy over this particular tree comes as the city of Cambridge loses about 31 acres of tree cover every year. WBUR's Barbara Moran has our story. Andover Hall is the heart and soul of Harvard Divinity School. Built in 1911, the Gothic building needs some upgrades like modern classrooms, better accessibility, and a new meeting space. 
Divinity School officials also say they have a moral imperative to reduce the building's greenhouse gas emissions. But to do all this, Harvard says they need to cut down a tree. And not just any tree, a towering red oak shading a plaza by Andover Hall. Students call it the Divinity Tree, and it's probably around 150 years old. It's about 75 feet tall, and it has a crown of about 75 feet, which is typical of a mature red oak. Gretchen Legler is a student at Harvard Divinity School. So we're in a plaza here, this beautiful plaza, and so that renovation will will include an extension of the building that will require the um, cutting down of this tree. The tree is ringed with Buddhist flags surrounded by sacred objects. Oh, I see a menorah there as well. And Legler has applied for state legacy status, trying to save it. I'm not at war with the dean. I'm, to, I'm thinking more about taking the time to make sure that the most creative options are looked at for this renovation so that this tree can stay here. I should say first and foremost, we don't have any uh, desire to remove a tree. Ralph DeFlorio, director of operations at the Divinity School, says the architect explored other options. And he says there's no way to add the extension, keep the hall's historic facade, obey zoning laws, and save the tree. DeFlorio says they'll plant new trees to replace the one lost, and the building will be greener overall. The energy profile of this building as a result of this project is dramatically improving. So you, you kind of run into this crossroads where you have to you know, do something that's not ideal and that you'd rather not do if you didn't have to, but look what you get as a result. Could we show where the tree, existing yes, tree, is on that? I'd like to know where the red oak in question yeah, is like on that know. particular picture. Okay. At a recent community meeting at the Divinity School, opponents of the plan question Harvard's reasoning. Cambridge resident Susan Ringler says the city is already losing too many trees and it needs them to fight the effects of climate change. Climate change is upon us, and every single large tree now matters. It matters hugely. And we are throwing away all of the assets that might actually protect us. And it is a really, really, really stupid thing for people to do. Cambridge plants about 500 to 700 trees each year. But the city's Urban Forest Task Force says it needs to plant 2,500 trees a year for the next 50 years to maintain the current canopy. David Meshulam is the executive director of Speak for the Trees. In a city like Boston or like Cambridge or the whole Boston area, we're facing real challenges with climate change. And if it just continues to be just one tree, just one tree, just one tree, we're going to turn around in 10 years and we're going to be flooded, we're going to be hot, we're going to have dirty air. We need to start having a different paradigm for how we think about just one tree, especially when it's a 150-year-old tree. Harvard's DeFlorio says he'll revisit the plans, and Divinity student Gretchen Legler hopes the school will find a way to save the tree. But construction is set to begin in June, and she's bracing for a loss. And I keep imagining with real sadness the day that this will happen, you know, a crane will come in, somebody with a chainsaw will go to the very tip top, start taking off the smaller limbs, 
and they'll work their way down until all there's left is a pillar and then they'll grind the stump and then it'll be gone and it is a very difficult thing to see an old big tree be dismantled in that way. People on both sides of the debate say this project offers Harvard a chance to be a symbol. The question is, a symbol of what? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. Barbara's reporting got us thinking about the importance of urban trees, so we called up Colleen Murphy Dunning to learn more. She's director of the Hickson Center for Urban Ecology and the Urban Resources Initiative at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Colleen, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. I'm wondering if you could start by maybe giving us your reaction to that story, what's happening at Harvard right now with this one specific tree and what it tells us about urban ecology. It's not that surprising because we have personal connections to trees all the time. They might symbolize something important to us from our childhood or an event in our life. And you can hear the passion that the students and the other advocates have for saving the tree. And so I don't think we should be surprised because we are part of nature ourselves and we have an innate response to nature known in our field of the study of the environment. We call this biophilia, which is how we innately react and respond to nature. So whether that helps us heal or help you feel calm. So when you just think of something like how we respond to the beauty of nature, that's what we mean by biophilia, when we, when we know this innate reaction and response that we have. I don't presume to know how Harvard's going to solve this debate, but sometimes you do really have conflict over even a single tree. How do you think about tree cover and the role of urban forestry in a city like New Haven? So, you know, trees are important anywhere on the planet. Rural places, they're also critically important. But in cities, I think they, they provide some really unique different roles. So as an example, in a city, we have poor air quality because of vehicle emissions. And trees actually can help improve that by trapping particulate matter from the emissions on their leaf area surface. And so if we can improve air quality, we also then help improve people's health because, of course, people are also in cities really affected by asthma. And so that's just one example. Leaves of the tree in the crown of the tree also intercept rainfall, slowing the rainfall that is then goes onto the soil and is, is taken up by their roots. Really important in terms of flooding, which we are seeing. You know, if you watch the news, it's almost daily, you know, um, and the news headlines about what's happening with our weather events and happening in cities in particular where we have more and more concrete, we have more and more roads and buildings and impervious surface. The more we build, like this new important green building they're going to plant, uh, build it, plan to build at Harvard, all this concrete and, and impervious surface is what leads to more and more flooding because we don't have the ability for rainfall then to absorb into soil. So, you know, the, the loss of tree canopy is really important in terms of combating those kind of serious urban management problems that we face to try to make our cities livable where most of us now live. It's not only important for habitat for wildlife, like birds that have to stop over on their migratory path to rest and, and recharge with food from trees, it's also important for people. We need that rest and respite. We need that kind of calming and the, and the nature around us. I think we, we shouldn't overlook the ways that it, it helps our well-being 
in living in a very dense place. Uh, a last question for you. How's New Haven doing? How, how is the forested land, the urban ecology of New Haven as you see it? We're, we're fortunate. Compared to many cities, we have relatively good percentage of canopy cover across our city. Unfortunately, it's not equal in every neighborhood. There's some neighborhoods with lower canopy cover. But in general, we have, you know, kind of compared to many cities in our country, we have relatively good tree canopy. We plant a lot of trees in New Haven, um, and we're really fortunate to have a partnership with the city of New Haven where any resident in New Haven or business can call URI and ask for a street tree, and we will plant it free for them. And then that person adopts and cares for the tree, which we think is so important, where we each can play a role in taking care of the nature that surrounds us. Colleen Murphy-Dunning is director of the Hickson Center for Urban Ecology and the Urban Resources Initiative at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. That's the URI she was talking about. We'll have links on our website, nexttonewengland.org. Colleen, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Finally, we're going to end with the story of an elusive wildcat that's making a comeback across New England. As Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, bobcats are returning to the region following decades of conservation and forest regrowth. And now that the wildcats are bouncing back, biologists are seeking to learn more about where they are and what they're doing. I'm at a lab in northwest Connecticut, standing next to a bobcat. Its bright eyes and black tufted ears are separated from me only by the metal grill of a large carrier. She's sleepy, but waking up. So that's just her way of telling us to back away. That morning, Jason Hawley, a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, got a phone call. It was from a coyote trapper who'd accidentally caught this bobcat. Lately, Hawley's been putting out the word to trappers. If you catch a bobcat, don't release it. Instead, call his team. So we sent two people over to Lebanon. They drugged the cat, tranquilized it, put it in our carrier that we use. They're basically like a kennel. They stay pretty calm in there. Holly's with the Connecticut Bobcat Project, a study entering its second year with the goal of tracking bobcats all over the state. These wild cats are about two to three times the size of your average house cat. They're elusive and quick, and as sightings go up, Holly says lots of people confuse them with mountain lions. In addition to its tufted ears, one of this cat's defining features is its short bobbed tail. Holly's project seeks to learn more about the hidden lives of these cats, examining diet, fertility, and how bobcats act in the wild, and more and more, in our backyard. Our bobcats in more urban areas using different habitat or different resources, and are they using it differently? Are they using it at different times of the day? Are they moving at different times? Today's bobcat is starting to wake up from its transport slumber. So before biologists can work on it, it needs to be redrugged. Holly and his two assistants administer a sedative through a long syringe pole. Good. After about 15 minutes, the cat is under. She out? Ooh, pretty darn good. Holly pulls the bobcat out of the carrier and places it on a long metal table. Scientists remove a few bloated ticks and a small molar to get the cat's age. The head and neck are measured, there's a DNA sample, and the cat is ear-tagged and fitted with a GPS collar. 
you know, most people think of bobcats as like, you know, needing woods and living out in the middle of nowhere, but I mean, we're finding they're very adaptable animals. So far, the project has collared more than 80 cats, tracking bobcats through rural forests and even one in Connecticut's biggest city. It's pretty amazing. I mean, he'll he'll go right into almost downtown Bridgeport and use some of the parkland that they have in there. Regionally, sightings are also on the rise. Vermont wildlife officials say bobcat populations are healthy and well-distributed, and numbers are also up in Maine, increasing alongside the bobcat's bigger cousin, the Canada lynx. Back in Connecticut, Holly says bobcats, which in the mid-20th century were subject to a bounty, can now be seen in all towns. He says location data they're getting from those GPS collars is helping to pinpoint den sites, letting field biologists examine bobcat kittens in the wild, creatures that otherwise would be nearly impossible to find. And all that GPS data also provides something else, insight into bobcat personalities, like another cat he tagged in southern Connecticut. His home range was just sort of this vertical strip along the Connecticut River, and he would actually go out to islands in the river, like swimming out in the islands. Most people, you know, think cats don't want to swim. So, they're yeah, they're very interesting animals, and they definitely have personalities. As for the cat I met, it was released the next day, right back where that coyote trapper accidentally picked it up. Holly says she'll probably have her first litter this spring. So if all goes well with her collar, it's possible biologists will see this cat again, this time with kittens. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Patrick has some great pictures of his bobcat encounter. You can see them at nextnewengland.org. You can also find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. And if you do like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski, And our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Michael Garth. Special thanks to Adam Frenier, Zoe Mitchell, Deborah Becker, and Max Larkin. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public's Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.